This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. Could you have, you know, a combination of parameters that are going to make it fruitier, uh, less neutral, or, you know, uh, more off notes, less off notes, um, things like that. This week on the show... What happens when you ferment my favorite yeast strain warmer or colder? What happens when you under or over pitch it or put it in strong work? Hello, my name is Anne Flesch and I am Fermentis Regional Sales Manager for Western North America and I'm based in Sacramento, California. The study that we're talking about today was part of a larger R&D program that uh, does where you guys do work to characterize the the various strains in the fermentist portfolio and, and understand how they react to different fermentation conditions. Tell us more about that. Yes, that's correct. Um, I would say that at Fermentis, we have a quite strong R&D program that has um, different axes when we look at our brewing strains. Uh, one of these axes is going to be characterization of our yeast strains. And this study specifically is part of this program where we are going to try to characterize our strains kind of in the same condition, how different strains react, uh, what type of aromatic profile they're going to have and so on. But also when you start moving the fermentation parameters, um, you know, gravity, temperature, fermentation, pitching rate, how they're going to react in terms of fermentation performances, um, sensory analysis, and so on. So I would say that's that's kind of the first access. Um, we also have other programs that look more at interaction of yeast and raw material uh, with uh, right now a strong dominance of interaction of hops and yeast. Uh, but we also have a program that looks more at um, kind of a, characterization of our our 
brewing strains on different beer styles. So we're going to have, you know, a specific beer style, let's say New England IPA, and we're going to try to characterize our yeast um, on this. So, um, yeah, I would say we have three big uh, axes right now, and this is one of them. Today we're talking about one of my favorite yeast strains. In fact, I've probably brewed more beer with this strain than any other. Uh, For those who've never used it, give us an overview of 3470. Yes, so Safflager um, W3470 is definitely one of the most popular strain in our brewing portfolio. Um, so it is Saccharomyces pastorianus. It's a lager strain. Uh, it is our uh, our version of the Weinstefan strain. So it is a very, very uh, popular, one of the mostly uh, widely used lager strain in the world. Um, and I would say... Uh, People using our Safflager W3470, um, you know, use it to make uh, various styles of lager from, you know, light laggers, dark lagers, amber lager, pilsners, box. So definitely a very uh, multifunctional uh, fit, uh, many type of laggers. Um, uh, strain. Uh, it is known to be very neutral um, and um, really giving you the possibility to highlight, you know, uh, the raw material, malt, hops, um, and uh, to be also neutral in many conditions. Is the, uh, the Ferminus uh, active dry yeast version of 3470 genetically identical to the 3470 I can get Weinstefan to send me on a slant? Uh, so I, I'm not sure I can completely give you um, a full answer to that. Of course, uh, each, each producer of, you know, a specific strain is going to have, um, you know, a specific uh, variant of that strain. So they might be highly similar and yet have, you know, small differences. So uh, most likely at brewer's level, you might not see the differences, uh, but, you know, you might have small differences. But yes, okay. initially it is exactly the same strain. Fair enough. And I can attest to uh, the fact that it's extremely similar and I've used the, the same strain from lots of different yeast labs and, um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing drastically different about it for sure. This strain has been widely studied because it's so popular globally, I assume. Your team wanted to know to what extent 3470 is influenced by various fermentation parameters, right? That's correct. Yeah, that was the intention of the study, trying to see, you know, we define it as a very neutral strain uh, in our baseline. And the question is, when we start moving the fermentation parameters, um, and here, namely, it's going to be original gravity, um, fermentation, temperature, and pitching rate, how how is it going to affect um, the fermentation and the resulting beer? Uh, could you have, you know, a combination of parameters that are going to make it fruitier, uh, less neutral, or, you know, uh, more off notes, less off notes, um, things like that. Okay. So essentially, uh, you ran some trials um, that looked at those three different parameters, the wort strength, the temperature, and the pitch rate. Do you want to kind of give us a a little bit of an overview of how those trials were set up? Yes, uh, for sure. So the idea is that we had, um, you know, a very neutral recipe that would allow um, also if there was any yeast expression to really show. So it was done 
with a word um, 100% um, Peel's mouth. Um, um, it was 28 EBU that were only added with um, iso-alpha acids uh, at the end of boiling. And we used, like uh, we said, our um, Saflagger W3470. Uh, so the active dry yeast as direct inoculation. So without rehydration, according to our easy to use certification. And then we had 14 different conditions studied. Um, so, and they were, uh, variating with, uh, three different original gravity. We did 12 Plato, 16 Plato, and 20 Plato. Um, for the fermentation temperature, we had 12 Celsius that could be considered as a more traditional, um, uh, lager fermentation temperature. So that would be um, approximately 54 Fahrenheit. Then we had 16 Celsius, um, 61 Fahrenheit, and 20 Celsius, approximately uh, 68 Fahrenheit. And so this would be considered higher temperature for, for lager, uh, closer to ale fermentation temperatures. And then for the pitching rate, same thing, we looked at pitching rates that were under what we were recommending and over what we would recommend. So we went from, we had four scenarios, 25 gram per hectoliter, 50 gram per hectoliter, 100 and 200. And in typical lager um, fermentation temperature, if you're around um, above 12, um, 12 Celsius, we, a typical recommendation for us would be between 80 gram per hectoliter and 120. So you see that I would say the 100 gram per hectoliter would be our typical recommendation. Okay. Um, yeah. And this was done in, in pilot trials at 50 liters. So, so to add. Excellent. Give us some high level performance observations. Yes, so the first thing we looked at uh, for these 14 different scenarios is looking at the fermentative performances. Um, so as a, you know, as an overview um, of the, fermenti- the fermentation uh, performances in these 14 scenarios, we could see a drastic differences between, um, so the shortest fermentation was four days, the longest fermentation was 19 days. So definitely a huge difference. Um, what we saw was, of course, uh, at the same fermentation temperature, the higher density uh, would take more time to ferment. Uh, but we also saw that there was a huge impact of temperature, and I think that would be the main uh, takeaway there. Um, the temperature uh, has a, a stronger impact on fermentation time than than the pitching rate uh, or the density, and we actually found uh, also very good correlation between the, the temperature and the fermentation time. So um, also something that this study showed was that the pitching rate uh, had very little impact um, on the fermentation time when you were fermenting at higher temperature. So, and at the opposite, um, a low pitching rate at, uh, could be compensated with a stronger fermentation temperature uh, for fermentation time. So but main message really is uh, the strong impact on the temperature of the fermentation, on the fermentation time. Um, that would be the biggest driver here. Okay. So no major surprises there. Did the wort in these trials get any oxygen at all? 
It did not. Uh, it's, okay. a good, it's a good question. Um, so, uh, Fermentis Active Dry Yeast, the way we produce our Active Dry Yeast really is to give you a product that um, is really rich in ergosterol and survival factor. And if you use uh, our product, uh, you know, fresh Active Dry Yeast every time, um, we do not specifically recommend aeration because we provide you with a product that has enough ergosterols for you to go through um, through a fermentation. That being okay. said, if, if people were, you know, to to repitch or um, do things like this, then we would recommend aeration. Okay. Yeah. So essentially it's already got enough sterols, so you don't exactly. need oxygen for yeah. it to build build new cell membranes. Exactly. And in this in this context we used, you know, uh, active dry yeast, fresh active dry yeast um, for each each scenario. So as we all know, just because something is fast doesn't mean it's good. So what's next? So, yes, for sure. We looked at three different things. Of course, we wanted to see the effect of these parameters on fermentation time. Um, but then what's important is to look, okay, um, is it affecting, are these parameters affecting the production of different volatile compounds? And here specifically, we're going to look at the higher alcohol, the esters. Also, we looked at you know, the 4VG, even though here we don't expect a phenolic compound from this year, it's a, it's a puff negative strain. But we looked at everything. And then also most importantly is then we have this analysis of these volatile compounds. Now, uh, how does it translate in sensory analysis? So this would be the two next step, looking at the production of the volatile compounds and then as a sensory analysis uh, made through uh in the work of a tasting panel. Okay, so and what were all the? Um, can you can you kind of list out the volatile compounds that you looked at? Yeah, so starting with the higher alcohol, uh, we looked at the five uh, main higher alcohols that are produced during fermentation. And um, uh, so, if you want to, you know, look at the list, I would say the main ones uh, that are going to be have an, an influence on your sensor and your sensory analysis are going to be the isoamyl alcohol that is associated with um, strong candy banana flavors. Uh, so sometimes. Uh, described as uh, more bubble gum. Uh, and then the second one is going to be the phenyl ethyl alcohol that is more associated with perfumey, floral, rose type of aroma. So I would say these are the two um, main uh, higher alcohol that we looked at. Isoamyl alcohol was the only alcohol that showed up on your short list of, of uh, flavor units above threshold, right? Mm -hmm. So tell us about isoamyl alcohol. What's important about it and which trials uh, did it show up in? Yes. So just looking at the higher alcohol um, specifically, we see that... Um, so first of all, you have to understand that we express uh, the production of this molecule in what we call flavor units. So uh, flavor units, it's not the concentration produced, but it's a concentration in report to its, uh, its perception. So one flavor unit for one compound would be the, the average threshold of perception by um, an average human being. So if you are under one, that would mean most likely people won't be able to perceive it if you are 
above one, uh, people could start perceiving it. Um, so when we look at the higher alcohol specifically, it's pretty impressive that most of the higher alcohol, uh, you know, in all these scenarios, even the ones that were the most extreme, um, you know, 20 Play-Doh, 16 Celsius, 200 gram per hectoliter, or 12 Play-Doh, 12 Celsius, 25 gram per hectoliter of pitching rate, um, most of these higher alcohol really stay below the one flavor units, uh, which I think is pretty amazing. Now, uh, there are a few scenarios where you see some um, a production of isoamyl alcohol between one and 1.5 flavor units. Um, and these are, once again, some of the extreme scenarios um, that I described. But, uh, you know, even being below 1.5 is still considered very, very low and a very low chance of perception. Um, so really what this shows is even in extreme scenarios where people would expect the yeast to produce um, stronger uh, alcohols, uh, you stay below the 1.5 flavor unit for isoamyl alcohol that is, um, you know, it's one of the the main higher alcohol produced by yeast in fermentation. Um, and in some yeast strain, you know, you, you could arrive to very, very high level of flavor units, uh, typically, you know, in a, in our, uh, Safel B256, uh, uh, you arrive to very, very high level of flavor units of this compound. So really being below 1.5, what it says is that it's very uh, unlikely to be perceived by um, must tasters. And that the one that I registered the highest on, I believe that was the one that was like a strong wort in cold temperatures or something like that? Yeah. So if you look specifically at uh, the ones that produces the most, uh, it's going to be um, the one. Like it was a 20 Play-Doh. High density. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be 20 Play-Doh, uh, 16 uh, Celsius, and 200 gram per hectoliter of, um, of yeast. And I believe that's the one that arrives at the strongest amount of, um, of isoamyl alcohol. But like you said, it's still under one and a half. So it's, it's still, still not under one much. and a half. Yes. So, right. yeah, exactly. Maybe I could just also uh, um, add that uh, when, when you look at the correlation um, between different fermentation parameters, the strongest correlation is going to be density with production of alcohol. So you do have an impact uh, of other, uh, of other um, uh, fermentation parameters, but really what's really going to drive here, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be the density, the amount of sugar that you produce, that, that you ferment, sorry. Coming up. You can increase the temperature, you accelerate your fermentation, but without affecting really the aromatic uh, and flavor uh, of, of your beer. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. 
Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character, suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. July 20th, join John Harris, Kevin Davey, and Andy Morrison for a webinar called Cold IPA Defined, a Deep Dive with the Creators. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. I'm so glad to see the great District Northwest meeting once again at Hood River, October 15th and 16th. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, United We Brew. Now back to the show. So what happened when you looked at uh, esters and 4VG? Well, the conclusions when you look at esters and um, and 4VG, so 4VG, we can almost, you know, kind of not talk about it. There is no production of 4VG, which is, you know, um, uh, makes total it's sense here. Right? It's a puff negative strain. So right. we did not expect, but it's, it's part of, of our protocol. Um, so... 
the conclusion when you look at the esters is very, very similar than the alcohol. You would say that for most esters, uh, in most scenarios, you are below the one uh, the threshold of one flavor unit, which means most likely not perceivable. Um, and if you look at you know some specific scenarios, uh, you're going to see uh, some some esters that are between one and one point five, um, and uh, mainly it's going to be the ethyl hexanoate and the isoamylacetate. So. Um, uh, so associated with uh, banana, um, candy, uh, and ethyl hexanoate, more apple anise uh, aromas. Um, and these are the most important esters produced that are going to be between 1 and 1.5 in some specific scenarios. But once again, um, at this level, we're, we are still talking about very minor impact on the flavor expression. Okay, excellent. With ethyl hexanoate and isoamylacetate being the only two esters to even you know even kind of show up on the board above flavor threshold, uh, what drives the production of those compounds um, f- for for those who maybe want to achieve more or less of them? Um, so once again, uh, one of you know biggest driver of of these esters is going to be the production uh, the the density um so the density is going to be the biggest driver of production because of these aromatic because you need an alcohol to make an ester right uh, so there is a strong relation between ion alcohol and acetate esters. So typically, you know, we were talking earlier about um, the isoamyl alcohol. The iso- isoamyl alcohol is going to be esterified in the isoamyl acetate. So for sure, there is a strong correlation. If you produce a lot of uh, isoamyl alcohol, you're going to produce uh, most likely a lot of isoamyl acetate. So these compounds are uh, always linked in their production. Correct. Okay. All right. You know, we tend to think generally that increasing temperature is going to increase the ester profile in most scenarios, but it seems like maybe that's not really relevant here. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that was the part why people are so interested in this story in this story and this um you know this, this program and this research is because the main expectation is if i rise my fermentation temperature in a lager it's not going to be as neutral it's going to produce esters and it's not what i what i want um and what what this study shows and if you look here if you look at the correlation between different factors you see that uh, while the temperature has a huge impact on the duration of your fermentation it does not correlate well with the production of uh, volatile compounds esters um, and higher alcohol so really you can increase the temperature you accelerate your fermentation but without affecting really the aromatic uh, and flavor uh, of, of your beer when you look at specifically esters and ion alcohol. All right. Um, okay, so the theme of sensory not always matching up to analytics has come up on the show a lot here, especially in regards to hop chemistry and things like that. Tell us about um, sort of what what type of uh, sensory you did, what what uh, parameters you looked at, and how much variation you saw from one sample to the next? Yes, it's it's very important um, to you know to see if the volatile um, 
profile uh, is linked to the sensory analysis for sure. Uh, it's the most important part of the study and the the the. The, the crucial, I think, for for brewers. Um, so we we always finish our study with a sensorial analysis, and we have we have a trained panel at Fermentas that um, we use for for the study. In average, we have uh, twenty two trained uh, taster per session. So in the case specifically here, um, you know, the sensory analysis was done with blind tasting um, and three repetitions with an average, like I said, of twenty two. Uh, um, uh, train taster per session um, and you know they have to rank um, to rank the different uh, beers on different criteria uh, going from zero not detected to high level I think it's uh, from zero to eight so typically they would be asked you know a specific question about uh, fruitiness floral character um bitterness, sweetness, alcohol, off notes, and so on. And they have to rank the beer uh, from zero to eight. Okay. And, and so did you see, I mean, did, did, uh, did you see any major differences in any of those? Did anything stand out? Did you see, you know, um, sulfur compounds or anything like that sort of, you know, be, uh, be a problem on the charts? Um, so when when you when you look at the result of the sensory um, sensory panel, I think the first thing that stands out is how similar the profile, the spidergraph of these different beers um, are are. Um, there are you know you can see differences, but the spidergraph are very very close to each other, meaning there is not a lot of differences in sensory analysis between these beers. And this is what we expected from the volatile uh, analysis, but it really shows. I think when you when you look at the, the sensory profile uh, from the panel, now you do see some statistical uh, uh, differences that are related to the density. So specifically on sweetness, alcohol, and warmth, the, the beers that were fermented with higher density, you see a statistically uh, 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 relevant difference uh, between the beers. But once again, these are more linked to the original gravity than the other parameters. Okay. Yeah, it's really a very tight line. There's, it's a there's tight line, really yeah. Not- yeah, and yeah. yeah, if you look, if you look at each compound, each uh, each um, each uh, criteria that was analyzed, the uh, fruitiness, uh, floral, the sulfur, and you look at each scenario next to each other, it's very very flat lines. Um, they were ranked very very similarly, uh, even in these extreme conditions. Okay, um, we haven't talked about off flavors yet. Did mm-hmm. anything nasty show up? <laughs> So um, the, a few scenarios were um, had um, some higher off notes than others, and we looked in more details about what off notes specifically. Uh, that was a follow up study, actually. Um, and uh, what what happened is two scenarios had higher diacetyl um, production, but uh, what you have to remember is that. All these this sensory analysis was done, you know, you know, post fermentation without diacetyl rest. So think about, you know, all the scenarios that were fermented at low temperature, low pitching rate. Um, it makes sense that you have more diacetyl, uh, and it's more related to the conditions rather than 
the fermentation itself, uh, because the two scenarios that showed up with, you know, more diacetyl were uh, fermented at 12 Celsius and with low pitching rates, it was 25 and, and 50 gram per hectoliter. So once again, more related to the condition post-fermentation than, um, you know, you would have in real life brewing. So what are the big takeaways here for, for lager brewers? Uh, I would say the big takeaway on, you know, the sensory and the volatile analysis is really um, the higher the density, of you will have a higher production of volatile production, but you will have very minor uh, sensory impact. Um, so some fermentation parameters such as the, the the initial gravity will drive more volatiles, but most likely you won't be able to perceive it in your beer. Um, and um, after that, the temperature too, but once again, minor sensory impact. And that was shown um, by the by uh, the flavor units, but also by the sensory analysis um, panel. But um, also what we showed uh, was that if you ferment at lower temperature, uh, not only you have a higher risk of slow fermentation, but also potentially more off notes um, such as diacetyl, but also, you know, potentially more sulfur notes um, because you have less, uh, less uh, volatility of these compounds. So um, I would say that's the main conclusion of that part. The main conclusions for me of the study was really to see how robust uh, and stable this strain was over many conditions that could be described as quite extreme <laughs> for a lager uh, production um, and that you could really ensure um, faster fermentation at higher temperature without affecting your flavor. And what's interesting is we had a lot of, we have a lot of feedback from brewers, you know, we decided to, to, to increase the fermentation temperature specifically. And we're very, very satisfied with the result because it was allowing them of a, a quicker turnover of fermentation. And we have really very, very um, similar and stable aromatic profile that was very neutral. And I assume the fermentation temperatures were held constant in these studies. It's a pretty common strategy to start lager fermentations cooler and then let them free rise up midway through fermentation. Mm -hmm. Do you have any data on how that method might stack up against these results? Or is the message here just that it's pointless to even take that approach? No, I mean, we... we when we present this study, we have this question. Um, so yes, in our study, the fermentation temperature was maintained stable. Um, and, you know, the reason is we really wanted to see the impact of one temperature over the overall profile. Uh, if you start changing uh, midway, you increase the combinations of parameters and it becomes very hard to analyze the data. Um, I think, you know, your question is very relevant and makes sense. Um, but yeah, in this study specifically, we really looked at, you know, stable temperature. Um, but uh, my expectation is, you know, if you were to start at, at, low for, at one temperature and rise, you would probably see something still very stable and very robust and very neutral. How about repitching? Does uh, anything change after that first pitch? 
Um, so we we did not do specific studies about you know how repitching will affect um, your fermentation or your. We do have some. Um, general recommendation, um, especially for lager strain, you know, if people wanted to want to repitch, um, uh, we recommend uh, four or five generation um, because we know that after that you're gonna start seeing some more difference. The more you repitch, um, you know, specifically, you're gonna have an evolution of the yeast, and um, you tend to also. Uh, select yeast that are, um, you know, more foculent and sedimenting faster. And you're going to start seeing effect on your fermentation and your flavor profile. But we haven't done, you know, specific study on our South Lager W3470, really looking at that. Okay. And what about um, what about rehydrating this strain versus just direct inoculation uh, like, like you did in this study? Uh, would that have any impact here? We actually, we did do extensive studies on uh, rehydrating versus direct pitching. Um, and that was done a few years ago because um, at this point, we kind of knew uh, our recommendation was to do rehydration, but we also knew that a lot of birds were, you know, direct, direct pitching. Um, and, um, you know, we wanted to see what was the impact um, of, of, of the process. And we were very confident that there was no impact, but we wanted to <laughs> look at it, you know, on a scientific um, point of view, the scientific study. So it was very, it's very impressive to see how if you direct pitch or if you decide to rehydrate, you will not see any impact on your fermentation, um, on the viability, on the vitality of the yeast. And also uh, it will result on um, non-significant aromatic profile of your beer. So based on this study, we uh, started what we call the easy to use certification on our strains. And so when a strain is uh, labeled easy to use, it means you can use it with rehydration or with direct pitching. And you are guaranteed that it won't affect your fermentation and it won't affect your resulting beer. Okay, got it. So you have some strains that don't that you don't recommend that for and some that you do. And this happens to be well, one that you do. Actually, the, the, the ones uh, the, the solutions that we have in our beer portfolio that are not certified easy to use is mainly because there are um, what we call fermentation solutions so blends of uh, yeast and enzymes and we don't recommend direct pitching of these but uh, the yeast strains that you know are um, uh, lager or ale strains uh, you know specifically for primary fermentation are all easy to all have the easy to use certification okay cool um, so and what's the ideal pitch rate of thirty four seventy in terms of grams per hectoliter per degree play-doh? Um, so we uh, the way we we recommend uh, our pitching rate is in gram per hectoliter, uh, not in gram per hectoliter per degree play-doh. Um, that being said, uh, um, so for W3470 and our other uh, lager strain, the recommendation would be uh, 80 to 120 gram per hectoliter. Um, we recommend a higher pitching rate if you were to ferment uh, below 12 Celsius. Um, so you could go up to 300 gram per hectoliter. 
in order to compensate for the low uh, temperature. Um, if, you know, in case of high gravity fermentation, you can also increase your rate. Um, uh, it tends to be more of a recommendation for our L uh, strains where we know, you know, people can choose a more different initial gravities than for lager when it tends to be uh, a little bit more in the same ballpark. But yeah, overall, um, for W3470, it's between 80 and 120 uh, gram per hectoliter um, if you are fermenting above 12 Celsius. But even lower than that, if you go with a much higher temperature, which the study shows that you can. I yeah. Mean, if it I'm shows, looking at... It, you're right. You're correct. Um, this study shows that, you know, temperature could compensate for a lower pitching rate. Yeah. So, I mean, it looks like you could go, you know, uh, you could easily get to um, um, do 50 grams per hectoliter, you know, in a 12 degree Play-Doh wort yeah. or yeah. in a 20 degree yeah. Play-Doh wort if you get the temperature up high enough. Um, so that and that would yeah. translate to as little as a 2.5 grams per hectoliter per Play-Doh up to like a, a four uh, grams per hectoliter per Play-Doh. So definitely, you know, a yeah. lot of potential savings for brewers as they're, you know, purchasing yeast and, and whatnot. So yeah, I would uh, say, I would say you could definitely look at the data at a lot of different angles. Um, fermentation temperature could help you on, yeah, on many different aspects. Um, you know, I would tend to, we went as low as 25 gram per hectoliter. I would say Probably not. That's I tend too low. To, yeah, I would, you know, I would probably say don't go lower than 50 gram per hectoliter for the lager strains. But um, yeah, yeah, and if you do, make sure it's warm, yeah. <laughs> very warm. But remember, yeah, I would say if you if you decide to ferment at very low temperature, you really need to compensate. If, if you want um, a reasonable fermentation time, you do need to compensate with a higher pitching rate. But uh, what's very interesting is actually to see how fermentation parameter influences it can influence yeast very differently um like w3470 it was kind of this stable dot you know that wouldn't move from neutrality and then a strain like saf lb256 uh it was uh it's very very strongly influenced by density uh first and temperature next um so it's 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 very interesting how different the strain react to ferment to the change of fermentation parameters. You can see why 3470 is the most popular lager strain in the world. Yeah, for <laughs> it sure. It takes a lot of abuse, right? <laughs> you can say that. That was Anne Flesh here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for a link to Anne's District Northern Cal presentation if you want a closer look at the data. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Mall, BSG, 
Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stand up.